Welcome to the Neuro Network. I'm Nick, and today we have a wonderful guest back, uh, actually a wonderful guest here for the first time, but uh, sort of a continuation on a previous show that we were doing before, uh, looking at the neuroscience or the art and science of fear. And so I have the pleasure of having Colton Scrivener, a research scientist, uh, and did his PhD at the University of Chicago and is now working for Recreational Fear Lab doing all sorts of fun, spooky research on the science and the psychology of fear itself. Colton, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So I was fascinating. It was fascinating, I should say, when looking at some of the different research that you've done. And could you provide perhaps, you know, like a a 10,000 foot overview of just what it is exactly would be the best way to describe the type of research that you do within the horror realm? Yeah. I guess the uh, the 10,000 foot view would be that I study uh, how and why people pay attention to certain threats and then how that sometimes gets turned into a form of entertainment. And more recently, I've been looking into how that entertainment uh, might be used to actually build resilience in certain cases. Ah, fascinating. So, so what's curious to me, though, is that when we talk about fear and horror, when you talk about the the psychology aspect of it, it's sort of butting heads with some of the physiological responses that you have to fear, right? I mean, right. we have a lot of these innate fear responses in order to protect ourselves from any imminent harm. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to, especially for humans, I guess, I, although who knows, maybe it's studied in, in rodents as well. But um, when you talk about the enjoyment aspect of fear, what is it exactly, you know, that separates the physiological response to fear to then transition to something where we find enjoyment from it? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, we tend to enjoy things when we think we're getting kind of a good deal, right? Like if you're getting a, a great deal on something you buy, it feels good to get that good deal, right? And I think our brain does the same thing when it comes to learning about threats. So if we're learning about a threat, um, historically and ancestrally, it was very dangerous to do so. You kind of had to be like face to face with that threat to learn something about it. So if I want to learn about a lion, I kind of have to be like close to a lion because televisions don't exist, books don't exist, stories exist. So once language is around, it becomes a little easier. Um, But generally, like learning about threats is is useful, but kind of dangerous. Um, And now in the modern day, you know, we have all different kinds of ways that we can put threats in front of you in a very safe way. We can do it through horror movies. We can do it through scary books. We can do it through scary stories. Um, There are lots of ways for us to learn about things that are potentially threatening. And our mind perceives these as good deals, right? Where we're not paying a very high cost and we're getting a pretty high benefit. And so I think the enjoyment aspect uh, in part comes from that. There's also aspects of, you know, building up suspense and relief that feels pretty good. Um, But I think all of that kind of ties back into the fact that, you know, we, we feel like we're getting a really good deal when we, uh, or our minds interpret, you know, the situation as a good deal when we're enjoying, when we're experiencing something, something threatening or something scary that's not actually causing harm to us. Is there, is there something about, uh, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about was um, in sports, for example, let's say in endurance racing or in combat sports or anything like that. It's often said, you know, that during the event itself, it's it's a painful experience mm-hmm. that you might be experiencing, but that the the sort of joy that you feel afterwards of the accomplishment overpowers what you felt during or the pain that you felt during the actual event itself. 
And right. so perhaps what's more addicting about some of those experiences is that feeling of accomplishment rather than the sport itself. Is there something like that with, you know, with horror films or with haunted houses, uh, a similar type of thing going on? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that we've been looking at at the Recreational Fear Lab is um, what are the different ways that we can interact with recreational fear? And are there different sort of types of of fans or different types of people who do this? Uh, And so, for example, in one study we ran at a haunted house, we found that there were sort of three broad categories of people who come to haunted houses. Uh, So the the first broad category, I think, is what most people think about if you were to envision the type of person who would go to a haunted attraction. So th- those people are the adrenaline junkies and they, you know, really enjoy, as you mentioned earlier, that like physiological response. They enjoy the, the spike of their heart rate and sort of the sweaty palms and the, um, the sensations that come along with that. These are the same kind of people that would enjoy something like, you know, skydiving or bungee jumping or other high adrenaline activities. However, that's really only like a small portion of the, uh, of the group of groups of people who come to haunted houses and who enjoy horror more broadly. The other two groups are sort of, doing what you mentioned, which is, um, you know, they go through the haunted house or they watch the horror movie and and maybe they like it, some of the sensations, maybe they like some of the scares, um, but it really is a truly terrifying experience. There is a nice mixture of like excitement, but also sort of real fear that's attached to that. And when they come out on the other side, uh, what they say to us is that, you know, they feel like they've learned something about themselves and they sort of have, have developed, you know, as a person or developed on a personal level. And I think what they're getting at there is sort of what you just mentioned is that they went through this experience that, that might have been scary in many ways, truly scary in many ways. Um, but when they look back on it, you know, they might be impressed with how they handled it. They might be surprised at how they handled it. And it's kind of a safe way for them to test uh, the boundaries of what they can handle and how they deal with situations when they're feeling anxious or feeling afraid. Because, in, you know, in the everyday world, if you're feeling afraid or feeling anxious, it's usually because something bad is happening. And when it comes to recreational fear, you can sort of play with those feelings, right? You can play with the feeling of anxiety. You can play with the feeling of fear without any real consequences attached to it. And so you can kind of practice uh, your response to that and sort of form better responses over time. Personal growth through through fear and horror. That's right, yeah. Which, which you know, for, well, for first, I guess I, I should back up uh, for my sort of simplistic brain as a, a neuroscientist that looks at, you know, cells that basically look like popcorn, just popping <laughs> one after another rather than putting it all integrated together within the mind, you know, we, we sort of stop when it gets to that part because that's just, that's too complicated. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, for the difference between fear and anxiety, I know there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's some sort of actual, uh, difference in the definitions. Could you just provide that quick? Yeah. Yeah. So fear tends to be a little more immediate. Uh, there's a grizzly bear in front of me. That's fear, right? Because I'm, I'm immediately faced with uh, a threat. Anxiety tends to be a bit more temporally distanced. So I'm feeling anxious about something that either did happen in the past or will happen soon. Um, I'm going to be put in a cage with a grizzly bear tomorrow. That's anxiety, not fear. I'm in the grizzly. I'm in the cage with a grizzly bear right now. That's fear. Ah, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. So, so anxiety, is it- anxiety is really more about prep, right? Anxiety, presumably, you know, is an adaptation in many ways. Like it, it evolved to help us prepare for potentially threatening things. I mean, that's part of the reason that we have kind of a propensity, I think, for imagining the worst case scenarios, right? It's really hard sometimes, like if you get on a plane and you hit some turbulence, you're not imagining, ah, we'll get through the turbulence just fine and it's just bumps. What you're imagining is, you know, what's going to happen if this is worse than it seems? So we're feeling anxious about that. And that anxiety is causing us to sort of simulate 
potential scenarios. We're simulating in our mind what would happen if this gets worse and what can I do to prepare for it? So I think anxiety, when we talk about recreational fear, the sort of potentially adaptive or um, potentially positive aspects of it probably come from a couple of things. One of them is is anxiety and learning how to like navigate those feelings. And the other one is learning how to, um, you know, respond to fearful situations in ways that are, that are helpful rather than detrimental. Ah, interesting. Does, does anxiety potentiate the fear response or does it dampen it mm-hmm. because now you've sort of, you've already predicted the response to happen. And if that fear response lines up with one of those, I could see it, I could see it almost dampening the response, but at the same time, I would imagine an anxious state, you know, a neuromodulatory <laughs> state would heighten yeah. all of the sentences and make it worse. Is there anything known on that? Um, you know, I could imagine that it really depends on how well prepared you are for this situation, right? So in both cases, you're dealing with a particular situation that's either happening or going to happen at a moment in time. And so if you're feeling anxious about it and your anxiety prompts you to uh, simulate possible ways to get around this and kind of actually prepare for it, and then you feel prepared because of that, then that anxiety uh, might dampen the eventual fear response, right? Because you feel a little more prepared going into it. But if you're feeling anxious about something that you have very little control over, um, when it comes, what you're reinforcing to yourself is that, you know, I don't have control over this. I don't have control over this. And then the event comes and now you're like, I still don't have control over this, right? And it's much worse, right? You really built yourself up into it. Um, So I think that it really depends on how much control or at least how much perceived control you have over whatever the situation is. Huh. Interesting. So is with with anxiety or, or with fear with with both of them fear or anxiety a, a lot of it perhaps you know you might be able to say comes from a potential for harm is that safe to say i'd say uh, so yeah and so with uh with recreational fear with haunted houses with with horror movies or anything mm-hmm. like that um there's an enjoyment aspect that comes out of it, even though in order to be scared, we somewhat have to, we have to perceive a potential for harm, I guess. And obviously, mm-hmm. you know, uh, within, you know, you sent me that, that review paper, which was fascinating, um, that was looking at, at, in some instances, the reward for putting yourself into that potential for harm may outweigh the dangers that come with it, like going into mm-hmm. a predator's territory in order to get food if you're starving will mm-hmm. override that. What is it for recreational fear that we seek out that is the most rewarding? And I guess we've sort of covered it a little bit, but is there you know, something that is enough to push you over the edge to put yourself into that situation? Or is it because we innately know that, okay, we're not really in danger? I think it's, I think it's a bit of both. And I think it kind of depends, you know, there are huge individual differences when it comes to these kinds of things. And so I think it kind of depends too, on what other personality traits you have. You know, if you're if you're high in risk taking, um, you might have a much lower threshold for what is seen as a as a benefit that will outweigh the costs, right? Uh, maybe that's even how risk taking could be defined as sort of downweighting costs and upweighting potential benefits in some ways. Um, if you're a bit less of a risk taker, then maybe you need um, you know more of a feeling of assurance that you're safe. So you might not go to a haunted house, but you might read a scary book because it takes a lot more effort to um, it's, it's all about kind of towing that line between real and imaginary, right? I think in that paper I sent you, he, uh, the author had mentioned that um, it's really about passing your brain's reality check. So we have these uh, scary situations that kind of, um, I would say, sort of fool our minds into thinking something 
really threatening is about to happen, right? It's, it's, it's the same as if you walk up to a hot stove and you touch it, you move your hand before you think about moving your hand. After you move your hand, you think about move, you know, the fact that it was hot and you moved your hand, and then you can action on that. But it's good to just get your hand out of the way first. So we have that sort of immediate reflex. Um, I think something similar happens with fear where you know, uh, the amygdala is a very quick threat detection um, part of the brain that, that detects threats very quickly and then does some very basic actions. Uh, that help get you out of harm's way. And I think that's where, you know, that's where the uh, adrenaline rush, the, the sweaty palms, the heart racing, sort of the feelings and sensations of fear come from. Uh, however, once we reflect, you know, for even a moment on that, the fact that we're at our homes watching a movie or we're at our homes reading a book, or maybe we're at a haunted attraction, but we know it's just a haunted attraction, you know, it's just, it's all pretend. Um, we're able to kind of counterbalance that, that weight of feeling afraid and feeling like there's threat with, it's not real. Um, and I'm actually safe. Which I found that fascinating in the paper when it was talking about that, that the amygdala response, I didn't realize the the, the temporal nature or the, the the speed at which the signals are transmitted between the so different. So fast. Yeah. And I didn't realize that the amygdala response, which, you know, is for anyone that's unaware, I guess, is a hub for fear, I guess would be a safe way to say it within the brain. Um, yeah. It, but it's it's activated faster than the regions that become active for evaluating whether or not the fear is legitimate, right? Yeah, but I think that I think that makes sense. I think so. Two things. I mean, first of all, I think that makes sense, though, for the same reason that the hot stove reflex makes sense, right? Um, it's, it's been a minute since I've taken my, my physio classes, but if I remember <laughs> correctly, when you touch the hot stove, it actually goes to your spinal cord first because it's a shorter distance, yeah. right? It causes yeah. you to move your hand before you think about it, and that's a much more adaptive way to deal with something that from a statistical point of view over time is like very harmful. There are very few situations where you touch a hot stove and it's not harmful, right? <laughs> so it makes sense for, or hot anything, hot fire, for example. Um, so it makes sense that, you know, that signal gets sent very quickly. It doesn't need interpretation. Um, you're really betting on the fact that that's dangerous and you need to get out of the way. It's great to think on it later, uh, but for the, in the immediate moment, you need to get out of the way. And I think the same thing happens with, with threat more generally. It's generally good if you're, um, feeling afraid if it's if it's about fear and an actual present threat, it's good to like immediately remove yourself, then evaluate. The second thing I would say is um, there's a lot of really interesting research from Joseph Ledoux on the amygdala and sort of misunderstandings about um, the amygdala as a center for fear in the brain. It's really it's really a center for for threat, right? It's really a center about oh, yeah, um, right. yeah. interpreting threats, whereas fear is sort of the uh, emotion that's later that later is attached to that and is actioned on. Um, but that's, that's kind of a, a minor thing, but he's done some really fascinating work in this area on, uh, on the amygdala and threat perceptions and threat, um, assessments. Oh, interesting. I'll, I'll have to look into that. I, yeah. Cause I know, you know, with, um, some of the arbitrary, I shouldn't say arbitrary, but some of the, the older research that was done looking at the fear response for learning, mm -hmm. I know they were, they were trying to come up with easier protocols to stimulate the fear and they would just, you know, stimulate the amygdala. Yeah. And the responses were not as uh, unitary as was imagined to be the case based on the recordings. <laughs> right. <I know. laughs> so right. that's, that's, that's interesting to look at. Yeah. Um, I mean, to, to the extent that threat is like, you know, that fear is very closely tied to threat. Yeah, the amygdala is kind of like the fear center, right? But yeah. fear is really is, is a feeling, right? It's an emotion, whereas threat assessment, there can be a lot of different aspects of threat assessment. Huh. Is is that, so how how plastic 
is that response and I get and I guess the reason I'm I'm asking is because uh let's say that you take someone and it's their first time experiencing a haunted house or a horror movie or something like that mm-hmm. and they might be extremely terrified or unsettled maybe even um and and over time if that person has you know obviously there's going to be variability in the phenotypic expression of the plasticity over time but but uh if if that if you see plasticity over time where a person becomes i don't want to say necessarily desensitized but do you see you know like structured patterns that tend to emerge of people over time that are exposed to horror films or uh haunted houses or something like that where some people become almost uh it becomes more enjoyable over time whereas other people it mm-hmm. tends to become less enjoyable over time is there sort of like a dichotomous split between groups yeah that's a great question uh, i you know i think that there's not a lot of research on that but i've, I've done some thinking on this because it's something it's a really interesting question is you know do we do we really become desensitized if we watch a lot of horror movies and what does that mean for us right um I think one thing that's important to consider here is that it's different. Becoming desensitized to scary media is different than becoming desensitized to real threats, right? It's kind of it kind of goes back to the violent video game discourse. There's pretty good evidence now that playing violent video games does not make you more violent or more approving of violence in the real world necessarily, right? Um, it might make you more desensitized to violence you see on screen because, again, that's passing our brain's reality filter of this is not real. Uh, but that's a very different situation from becoming desensitized to real acts of violence or sort of being a more okay with violence. And I think the same thing is true of fear in that, you know, if you watch a bunch of scary movies, yeah, you probably do become, you almost certainly become, I guess you could say desensitized to um, scary media, to horror movies. And, to you know, because you kind of learn the tropes too. You learn the where the jump scares are probably going to be. Um, you kind of learn the plot lines that are common, the themes that are common. And so a lot, some of it is it's just becoming um, more familiar to you, right? Uh, there's there's less of the unknown attached to it. Um, and I think that one thing I've sort of anecdotally found in the horror community is a lot of people seem to start out, you know, watching horror and, and, and being afraid by it. Um, and over time, that kind of evolves into almost like a comfort genre for a lot of people where, you know, you go to sleep watching forensic files or a true crime documentary <laughs> or Halloween, um, which sounds insane to people who are not horror fans, right? But I, yeah. I, I'm writing a paper right now um, where we're looking at, you know, how this, how maybe like the predictive modeling framework of the mind could be applied to horror. Um, and, and one of the things that came up in discussions around that was that maybe one thing that's happening is that we're convincing ourselves that we're become, we watch a lot of horror movies, let's say, or a lot of true crime. Um, when we do that, we become very good at predicting where the jump scare is going to be, who the killer might be, sort of what the story is, right? And I think what's going on there is that we're sort of convincing our brains that are convincing ourselves that um, we're we're in a safe spot because we're we're really good at predicting threats now. Like we're now we believe we're really good ah. at predicting. You know, if I'm presented with something scary, sure. Um, again, in the media context. Um, I'm pretty sure I could get out of it because I kind of know what not to do or and what to do to succeed, right? And in that sense, that's kind of a comforting feeling, right? If I'm presented with something that seems arduous, but I, I'm pretty sure I can overcome it now because of all this past experience I've had with it, um, that can be kind of a comforting thing. And so, you know, I, again, that's I don't, that's speculation. I don't know if that's really what's yeah, going on, but it's interesting. It kind of makes sense because you do get a lot of 
people who've been horror fans for a long time who, you know, not only are they desensitized to it in some ways, but it actually becomes kind of a, a comfort familiar genre to them that they can like relax to. Is it, is it, is there anything to do with perhaps, I mean, I know it's all hy- hypothesized at the moment, but it's fun to hypothesize yeah. things. Uh, is there anything to do with, let's say, um, I don't want to say necessarily, you know, aha, gotcha kind of moments where, <laughs> you know, you sort of, you feel satisfied that you predicted something was going to occur and then it did occur and, you know, yeah. you sort of feel a self-infectuation that it, you, you were able to predict that it was going to happen before it even did. So it's almost like a game. Yeah, exactly. And the better you are at the game, then the more comfort you feel, right? The more like you feel good about that because it was easy, right? And it should be hard. And I think, you know, you see the same thing in detective shows or mystery novels, right? And that's, I think that's probably why, you know, people complain about tropes, but really people also love tropes, right? It's nice to have tropes that you can expect, but it's nice having a movie every now and then that comes along that kind of breaks the mold a little bit uh, because that gives you something new and exciting that you didn't expect. You don't want that too often because then you're back in the position of feeling unprepared. But if there's an occasional um, movie that comes along that kind of breaks the tropes um, and surprises the audience and surprises the critics uh, with how it delivers, particularly with horror, I think, you know, the reason that those do so well is because they're breaking those tropes, right? So despite the fact that we love the tropes and, and we want the tropes, it's nice to have sort of just a drip of, of movies that come along that are um, surprising and challenge us in some ways. It, with, with, uh, along those lines, when let's say for haunted houses, a very mm-hmm. immersive experience, I know over time, at least personally going through haunted houses, uh, initially it was, I don't want to say an overwhelming type of experience, but it, it is, it's very, <laughs> like, are, it's like yeah. a sensory overload. I mean, multi-sensory, yeah. Things coming at you everywhere and yeah, uh, uh, and then, you know, <laughs> over time, you start to notice certain patterns of theatrics that are going on. And so you see someone run that way and you go, okay, I know he's going to come out through that window over there. I've seen this before, or, you know, someone alluring you in and saying, you know, I think Ben was talking about, you know, trying to someone shaking a cage and seeing if you'll let them out. And then next thing, yeah. The next thing you know, you're in the cage and you're like, okay, well, I knew this was going to happen. You know, and so those are, those are safe ways to learn about what not to do. Right. And it's not, it's not to say that, you know, those situations exactly would necessarily happen if you were whatever found yourself in a place like that, that was real. Um, But it does kind of provide you with fodder to think about. Like it gives you something, it gives your brain something to, um, to sort of turn about it gives you it gives you something to latch on to and then build worlds out of or build possible simulations out of it, in, a, it, in a safe way yeah with, with with that though with the arts um you know the 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 way that our our brains i guess i'm gonna i'm gonna just go out and say that the way that our brains interpret um art and theater by sort of immersing ourselves into that world I guess. Um, so mm-hmm. we take in our surroundings and we can kind of fool our brains into thinking that it's our own reality to an extent. Right. Um, right. And that's possibly a big thing with um, with the horror type of, of industry. Um, is there something that how do I how do I word it best? Is there is there something that says this is real? This isn't real. And is there sort of a hard, fast type of pattern of things that need to occur in order for us to believe that it's actually real? Or is there any, um, I guess, rate limiting steps where we automatically say, okay, this isn't real anymore. 
and mm. I'm not enjoying this. Does yeah. that make sense? No, it does. It does. It's a tough question, though. I think if you knew that, you would probably be pumping out <laughs> best-selling horror novels all the time. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think there, 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 are some, there are definitely some things, right? I think the biggest thing is uh, a sense of psychological reality. When we see a character, it's fine if they're dumb, but they have to make sense, right? Like the actions they, they take have to make sense given the individual. Um, so I think that you, know, you can have as many ghosts and demons and other things that don't exist as you want. But what you do have to have are characters who make decisions that make sense, even if they're the wrong decision. Um, so there has to be some psychological reality to the characters. I think that's probably one of the biggest um, things that kind of snaps you out of it. Like if characters are acting in ways that don't make sense, that kind of snaps you out of uh, being sucked into the story, right? And I think that there's a huge, there seems to be a huge, not schism, but sort of uh, there's kind of a, a difference between people who enjoy psychological horror that could be real and sort of the more paranormal uh, monster type horror that is less likely to be real. Um, you know, if you really want to be scared, go watch a psychological horror movie because the things that are happening there seem more real, like they could happen. Uh, true crime in some ways is the same way. Um, and if you want to, if you want to sort of play with it a bit more and, and not feel as much fear, the paranormal route is sometimes the way to go. Now, there, it depends though, right? Because if you believe in ghosts, then paranormal is, is a very scary subgenre of horror, right? Mm. If you don't believe in ghosts, it's a much less scary subgenre of horror. So is I there, think, you know, that, yeah. is there something with the ghosts that, you know, I, I found it fascinating. I, I saw on, on the research art or the review article that you sent that, mm. um, and, and I've seen some reports about this before. Uh, basically like the filling in the gaps type of um, situation where you have a dimly lit room and you have someone look in the mirror and it was like 70% or so will end up seeing a ghost or somewhat reconfiguring their own face to to terrify themselves. <laughs> yeah. is, is that like an innate uh, trait that's born or how is that? Like, I don't see any physiologic benefit other than for a protection perhaps, you know, yeah. to always assume the worst, but at the same time, that's not always the best thing either. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do I, th I think that you know, I don't, I don't know to what extent that's like an innate thing that happens. <laughs> Cer certainly, it is. It is a. I would. I mean, the word innate is kind of uh, tough to use. I think accurately, but but you know, uh, something we don't have to think about. Something that's sort of subconscious and we don't have to practice. Uh, you know, we do tend to, as I, as I mentioned earlier, sort of think about, it's easier to think about like the worst thing that could happen than the, to think about the best thing that could happen. And that probably is an adaptation, right? Because it's better to prepare and prevent the worst thing from happening than necessarily always spending your time on thinking about the best thing that could happen while at, at the cost of avoiding thinking about the worst thing that could happen. And I'm sure that our visual system does something similar. I, there's a really interesting theory about dreaming that probably falls into this. It's the idea that dreaming you know there's not a lot of there's not a clear understanding and there's a lot of disagreement about what dreaming is for right it's a pretty caught like metabolically metabolically like you know not a free activity probably does serve or did serve some kind of purpose at least originally and maybe even now uh and there's one theory that dreaming actually initially <laughs> sounds terrifying but dreaming initially may have evolved to help us simulate threats which meant when we started, initially began dreaming, we were just having nightmares, which sounds awful. We weren't having any good dreams. Um, but, the, but the idea is that, you know, you need a reason for something like dreaming to happen. Like you need a reason for something like that to evolve because it's a pretty complex 
process, especially if you're generating entire images and stories in your mind while you're asleep. Like that's a that's not something that prob it's probably not something that just happens by coincidence, right? Um, because you know, despite them being sort of a messy in some ways there is a coherent story to a lot of dreams there is a theme there are visuals um and so this idea is that you know okay well maybe dreaming initially evolved to help us sort of practice and simulate for threats in a way that's um not interfering with our daily life so much uh and you know there's there's various there's some empirical evidence for this i think you know especially over the course of the pandemic people starting to have people started having more nightmares about things related to the pandemic right so you're taking in what's a new threat in your in your local environment and you're dreaming about it and you're sort of um playing with it in various ways right you're changing small things to it making it obscure making it weird which makes it a bit more memorable um and you're, you're simulating experiences with this new threat uh you know and it's also the case that kids tend to dream about scary animals and monsters more whereas adults tend to dream about more like scary social situations so they're dreaming about the threats that are you know relevant for them are, um, nightmare, are nightmares more common than peaceful, than, than peaceful happy dreams? dreams? I doubt it, right? That would be kind of a bleak, a bleak <laughs> statistic. I don't, I don't think they are. I, th I think, um, I think I did see some data on this. I don't think they're more common, but I think that they're surprisingly common. Maybe um, as, as someone who doesn't remember a lot of their dreams, I'm, I'm not, I'm not very, I'm not very well adapted to that kind of thing. But um, I was just curious because, like, you know, it seems like uh, we're we're more primed, I guess you could say, to, uh, or from what I can tell from my own experience, it seems like we're more primed to experience um, fear, or, or like, mm -hmm. if, you know, if we're if we're if we're looking at something, uh, we're almost we're more likely to go down the what if rabbit hole of something bad happening rather than exactly. something good happening, and so I don't exactly. know if that translated into our subconscious, maybe if that's the right word to use during dreaming um, where, you know, we we're experiencing these things, but we can't necessarily control what we experience, what we don't. Exactly. Yeah. And so what, what, what's one thing you can do? You can spend a lot of time thinking about it and thinking of simulating those experiences. And it's especially useful if you can do that when you're sleeping, when you're not doing anything else, right? It's not interfering with your ability to forage or do other kinds of things that, you know, lead to a productive life. So anyways, it's a, it's a super interesting theory and there's, there's some evidence behind it, I think. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. He's a Finnish neuroscientist, Ravanswo, maybe? I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly. But if you look up the threat simulation theory of dreaming, you'll find it. Um, and there's, there's, yeah, a lot of really know, interesting stuff about it. It'll be really fascinating. Is uh, some of the research going on now looking at different pharmaceutical techniques to replicate sleep without having to sleep? So sort of that... I've not heard of this. Yeah, uh, tell me more. Yeah, so, you know, some, some of the... Um, the gliolymph systems, as they might try to uh, call them, you know, some of these mm -hmm. systems where you flush the cerebral spinal they, like, fluid clean, along. Clean out the, yeah. Yeah, because we don't have the lymphatic system in the brain. And, yeah. but, you know, we found these flux of cerebral spinal fluid along the blood vessels to sort of flush out some of the right. uh, metabolic byproducts like, that build up through the day. And they're trying to figure out a way to have, you know, just basically sleep in a pill where you can take it. It stimulates that gliolymph type of system. Um, so that way you <laughs> replicate sleep without actually having to sleep if that is the physiological basis of sleep, but it would sure. be fascinating to see, you know, I had the hypothesis that anxiety levels and clinical depression would go through the roof because we wouldn't, we would no longer have that, you know, eight hour ish blocked period where we're doing nothing and we're sort of turned off from society. 
Oh my God. You would be like, it's like being stuck in a Vegas hotel with no casino, with no windows. Like you don't know what time of day it is. You know, you're, I think that would make you go crazy if you didn't have a, like something to break up, you know, a sequence of events into an experience. Like you would need something to kind of break the the sequence of experience up. I, I would imagine, but maybe not. Yeah. Well, I just, I think it'd be cool if, if all of a sudden, you know, removing nightmares suddenly had a big detrimental effect mm. on, on survivability of a species, because especially if you could do it in, if you could do a controlled study in the wild of an yeah. animal species and, you know, have a way to reproducibly remove nightmares from them and they no longer have these fear simulations and suddenly the species can no longer survive. It's like it's not, not good at, yeah, it's like, it's like we're removing play from, they, I mean, they've done this with play, right? If you remove like rough and tumble play or the kinds of play from, uh, from adolescence, it, it really, in, in other animals, it, it, they're not as good at like, they don't have as good of social skills. They're not as good at dominance competitions and other kinds of interactions with threats because they haven't practiced them. Right. I mean, that's honestly like a lot of the stuff that I do is kind of built on this idea that we're playing with fear. We're playing with threats and you know, it's, it's a way to, again, just like rough and tumble play is a way to safely practice um, predator prey interactions and dominance competitions. Playing with, with fear is a way for us to interact with threats in a safe way and kind of, practice those situations a bit more cerebrally cerebrally than um physically hmm. that's interesting well yeah. there you go now we got a new research study <laughs> <laughs> but we, along the lines of i guess the imagination creating mm-hmm. fears in our head um if, if you might put it in layman's terms but um with the advent of virtual realities mm-hmm. uh and expanding technologies technologies, immersive type of VR, um, mm-hmm. or even who knows, as you start to expand into implantable brain machine type of interfaces, or even non-implantable brain machine type of interfaces, is there a point where you can get to the, where you, is there, you know, a point where you can get to where the, the line between what is actually real and what isn't real is no longer able to be perceived? For sure. I, well, I don't know about for sure, because we, hmm. I mean, so, so our, our mind does have, uh, must have some kind of filter for that. Right. Otherwise people, when that filter breaks down, you get things like schizophrenia, right? Like when you, when your hallucinations oh, yeah. become reality, you know, that's a, a glitch in the system, right? That's your reality check, not working like it should. Um, and not being able to distinguish between what's happening in the external world and what's happening internally in your mind. Um, and so if, you know, if we were to able to have really immersive VR or some kind of implanted, uh, you know, interface system to make us essentially hallucinate these kinds of things, I think, um, I I don't know if it would entirely break down that barrier because I think we would still try to convince ourselves from a top down level, that this isn't real, right. If we needed to. But it also might not make horror necessarily more enjoyable because it's good to have that break, right? You might you might draw in more people who are thrill seekers, like real like high adrenaline junkie thrill seekers might enjoy that more. But I actually don't know if that would make something like a horror movie more broadly appealing. I think it would be a bit more of a niche kind of kind of thing, kind of like extreme haunts versus regular haunts, right? Regular haunts are obviously much more popular than extreme version uh, for that for that same reason. Um, so I don't know if it would totally break it down. I think that it would obviously make it much more difficult for us to distinguish between those. And, and it might sort of, you know, I guess it would probably, 
uh, mimic what happens in in uh, cases like people with schizophrenia, where hallucinations are perceived as real, right, and are perceived as um, consequential. Ah, yeah, that's that's similar to what what, what Ben was talk uh, talking about, and and with Netherworld, and um, I came up with probably the worst example for uh, manipulating our <laughs> our own physiology in order to enhance the experience. Uh, I was talking about using um, like uh, a viral type of approach where you could activate subsets of neurons uh, <laughs> with, with just chemogenetics and you could sort of prime yeah. <laughs> some of those areas before you went in. And of course, like that was probably the most like abstract concept I could come up with at the time, but uh, an implantable in machine interface or even non-implantable external yeah. would be a, a much more feasible thing to start out with. But have you looked into the difference between some of those experience or uh, extreme horror experiences mm -hmm. versus a more recreational haunted house? And, w you know, when it comes to, let's say, the psychology or the neuroscience aspect of the, the those two things, you know, theoretically, they're both based on scaring you. Right. But what is it that makes one non-enjoyable and the other something that, you know, brings people in in troves that are just ready to, to yeah. have fun? Yeah, I think a huge aspect of that is is control or at least perception of control. Right. Um, I, I think most people are perfectly fine feeling a little afraid or doing something a little dangerous if, if they feel like they have a safe word where they can stop. Right. If they can if they can exit the experience when they need to people are willing to take a little bit more of a risk. And in extreme haunts, uh, it's not always, most of them have some kind of safe word, but there are like extreme haunts and then the extreme, extreme, like McCamey Manor or other places that try to remove that, um, not just the sense of control, but in some, and sometimes like the actual ability to control your experience. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that probably appeals to people who are very, very high in risk-taking and very, very high in sensation-seeking. Um, but, but does not appeal to almost anyone else because what makes those experiences enjoyable, as we mentioned earlier, is the fact that you can sort of face them without consequence, right? And if you remove the aspect of control from that, now there's a consequence and that's a different kind of experience. Yeah, I think you see the same thing in video games, probably. You know, scary video games are probably, are, are, I would say, well, I don't know if this is true, actually, but I, I would love to do a study on this. But I imagine that a scary video game is actually a scarier experience than, let's say, a haunted house. Um, because mm -hmm. in a video game, a scary video game, there are consequences to your actions. It doesn't affect you, but it affects, you know, this like thing that you're controlling, this thing you kind of transfer your agency to. So if I'm playing a scary video game and I make a wrong move and I die, it, it affects me, but it affects like a, a simulated version of me, not the real me. In a haunted house, nothing you can do is going to really affect you, right? And as long as you can convince yourself of that, then you're going to be able to get through it. In a scary video game, it, it, there's just um, the the line of of um, consequence, the 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 line between inconsequential and consequences occurring is a little more fuzzy because there are consequences; they're just not happening to your physical body. Do you think if that? that yeah. Do you think? that making an interact and i know that some of the uh haunted houses all have an aspect of interaction involved sure. in them but do you think that making a haunted house completely dependent on your interactions like let's say there's series where there's a couple doors and you have to pick to go through yeah uh, one of them and there's multiple different paths that you could take through it do you think that that would 
uh, be so much scarier. That would be so much scarier. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was wondering that, like, it would totally be scarier because then like you have the uh, ability of re- you instill regret into some of it as well. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, you know, and then you have, of course, the people in the back of your group screaming at you for picking the wrong door. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but I almost thought of it from a fact of even like, you know, the, the economic study with jelly in the supermarket where there was too many choices, and, you know, mm. when there was just one choice to pick from, it was more, I don't want to say enjoyable because that's what wasn't what they were measuring. But sales had boomed when there was only one choice versus when there was a million choices. Most people ended up just not buying anything because it was too much yeah. for them to, to handle. Do you like in the haunted experience? I mean, obviously, you're being bombarded with strobe lights and sounds and guttural sounds and everything that's going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. But have you ever looked into uh, the ability for people to make decisions in that type of situation? And like, is there a preference for survival only, if that makes sense? Like, is there yeah. is, is there a a funnel of things, questions where they can become hyper acute, whereas other things are just like, bleh. right, right. That's hard to do because when we do studies at these haunted houses, we rely a little bit on, or well, largely on uh, the idea for the haunt already being finished, right? So we don't want, what we don't want, you know, it's a functioning business. So what we don't want to do is come in and say, hey, let us like make these changes so we can do a study. Um, Now, ideally, if we learn about it, we can tell them like, hey, if you make these changes, the experience might be better for people. Um, But so we haven't looked at that specifically. I think one year we did have a couple of choices that people could make. Um, this was at Dystopia Haunted House in Denmark. They had a couple instances where people could make choices about how to how to proceed in the haunt, like do this or do that kind of thing, or go this way or go that way kind of thing. Uh, but we weren't able to capture the decisions very well, um, so we weren't able to do a lot with that. But I, that's like one of our one of my goals, and I think one of <laughs> Atias and the rest of the, the folks at the Rec Fear Lab would like to do is to study decision-making in haunts. And when you give people decisions, can you predict like what type of person is going to choose this thing or that thing? And does it depend on their personality, their experience with horror, those kinds of things? And how scary, you know, does it become scarier when you have choices? I think the answer is probably yes. You'll have monsters that are presenting algebra problems and suddenly (laughs) (laughs) way more scarier in any ways, just because of that is with, with, with the difference though, between haunted houses and uh film horror films um i know i i'm not sure if we talked about it or or if it was in a previous conversation but talking about being able to um relate to the person on film and sort of be mm-hmm. able to put yourself in their shoes versus mm-hmm. uh a horror a haunted house where you you have your own shoes that you're in yeah. Uh, when it comes to actually creating an experience that is alluring someone in to be able to, I don't want to say necessarily embody, but basically in order to embody some of the emotions that that person on film might be experiencing, mm-hmm. is there a certain science that goes on to create a person or a being that is more relatable in order to bring them in? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like a, it's not like a dark ride necessarily where you're just pushing them in because on film you have the ability to just sort of look away <laughs> look away yeah so okay sorry can you rephrase your question again just so i understand it so so basically like in in creating a a horror film and you're creating the the, the main person um that's uh-huh. going to be 
like the protagonist that's protagonist that's yeah. experiencing all the different haunts. I mean, I, I'm assuming that the main goal is to get the audience to relate to that person so that they can put themselves in the shoes of yeah. that individual so you can sort of pull them along the ride and they can experience the emotions that that person would be feeling. Right. But is is there a certain set of behavioral um, or a certain set of behaviors, I guess, or qualities of that person that makes them more uh, more attractive in order to put yourself into their mm. shoes? Um. If there's a science to it, it's not been uh, laid out yet. That'd be great if we could. I would love to like do that, right? I, I've I've been looking into the monster side of things a little bit. Like, how do we make the perfect monster, right? Based on what we know about fear and, and threat assessment. But that's a good question about the protagonist. I mean, surely there's been some research on this. Maybe not in horror specifically, but in, certainly in you know media studies more broadly on how to make a, a protagonist that's easier to empathize with. Um, involuntarily even i imagine you know as we mentioned earlier one of the most important things to do is that is to make that character psychologically real meaning that they act and behave in a way that a real person would act and behave and they don't act and behave in ways that you know only further the story um at the expense of them you know at, at the expense of their behaviors or actions not making sense so they need to be consistent internally consistent so like the character makes a decision you know, 10 minutes into the movie and then make another decision 20 minutes in, it needs to make sense that the same person would make both of those decisions, right? Um, I don't think it matters so much. Pro probably um, the, the poor decisions that they, the more poor decisions that they make, uh, the less likely you are to sort of empathize or, or, or put yourself in their shoes because you don't want to empathize with someone who you see as incompetent, <laughs> Um, well, that's I what I was wondering, because it's like, if I think that's you what watch... you get in slashers, right? You get like Halloween or Friday the 13th or um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Some of the final roles are pretty smart and like make, you know, good choices. But everyone else in the movie makes pretty poor choices. And that's it becomes like a funny thing to almost root for the killer because <laughs> these people are making poor choices. Right. And that's not what you should do. Um, I think that sometimes <laughs> uh, certain critics take that a little too far and see that as as horror encouraging you to empathize with the killer and i don't think that's quite what's happening i think that it's more you know it's a safe place to like point like poke fun at stupid decisions and the consequences that come from that right we obvi obviously you know people who find that funny or find it you know funny to like root for jason when you know the protagonist is being dumb uh they're not going to find that funny if that's a real situation right if, if an actual person is out stalking and killing people and someone made a dumb decision you're not going to like feel the same way about that right and if you do then yeah there's <laughs> then that's not uh you, you probably have some other psychological problems right but the <laughs> average person is not going to do that um so yeah i think that you know there are two options there and, and slashers tend to take the route of having one at least one character usually like the final girl right who maybe they make some mistakes in the beginning but in general they make good decisions right and and, and they survive because of it. that's why they're the final girl everyone else in the movie tends to make bad decisions or poor decisions. And, and that's why they die. Right. You see that you get to see, you get to witness again. It's a kind of this learning component you're witnessing. If I do this in this kind of situation, this bad thing will happen. Right. If I go out into the woods by myself, I might get murdered. If I go into the basement or split up from my group, I might get kidnapped. You're kind of getting these, uh, what not to do. Like you're compiling a, a list or a repertoire of what not to do in these dangerous situations. I, I was wondering uh, with the 
with empathizing with the slasher. <laughs> the only film that I'm aware of, uh, and I'm sure there's more, but you know, when they did the Freddy versus Jason. Uh, oh yeah. You do have to kind of pick one, right? You have to like pick which <laughs> Choose one is your the, fighter. Yeah. <laughs> which one of the monsters is actually like the one that I want to <laughs> root for. But, right. uh, with, with the slashers, uh, the thing that I was wondering about with, uh, universal fears, mm-hmm. obviously, um, you talk about the horror, uh, or the, the haunted houses, you know, they all have to have a chainsaw. Uh, because, uh, it's sort of just like this, you cause it's loud it's and what it's you do, yeah. cut, cut things <laughs> up. but, but what is it about sharp things, yeah. you know, whether it be a machete, whether it be an ax, a knife, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, possibly, you know, we've used so many knives cutting foods and everything. We can sort of see that there's the potential for danger in that situation. Mm-hmm. But is there, is there something about sharp things that, or is there a reason why we just find them so horrific yeah absolutely Uh, you know and you're right you know if you think about any famous horror monster their their weapon of choice is usually inefficient and it's usually sharp um whether that's jason with the machete or i mean they are inefficient right now if you're (laughs) if you're if you want you know michael myers is like sort of walking slowly or maybe he's running uh with a butcher knife that's like not the most efficient way to be a mass killer right um if you're Leatherface and you've got a giant chainsaw that requires gas and weighs 30 pounds or 40 pounds that is loud and can alert people that you're coming after them, like that's not a great way to kill someone. That's not a great way to like mass murder people, uh, but it is a great way to scare people. And one reason for that is, is likely that if you look at mammalian predators, what is the way? What is the one way that a mammalian predator captures its prey? It captures its prey with something sharp, and the something sharp is either or usually is both, but is either sharp teeth or sharp claws right and so i think you know um this was even kind of the the impetus behind freddy's claw is that um you know wes craven was looking for he even said this he was looking for something that tapped into the primal fears of all people of all places like the claws i forget what he said like the claws of of a tiger or something like that um but the basic idea is that you know any anything that hunts mammals has sharp teeth and sharp claws, or at least sharp teeth usually, but usually sharp teeth and sharp claws. And what you find is that every horror monster has either sharp teeth or sharp claws. Think about werewolves or Dracula uh, or other kinds of sort of more beast-oriented monsters, or it has um, an object that resembles sharp teeth and sharp claws. Freddy's glove, Michael's knife, Jason's machete, uh, even the teeth on the chainsaw, right? so yeah, the, the, you know, the reason that that's scary is because it does it does tap into sort of that reflexive, immediate fear response of something sharp. Uh, another reason, and this goes back to it being inefficient, is that if you have an inefficient weapon, what do you have to do as a killer? Well, you have to spend a lot of time chasing your victims. Uh, if I can shoot you from a distance, it's not very scary. It doesn't, there's not a lot of suspense being built up. However, if I have to stalk you for 90 minutes in a movie... Um, it adds an extra layer of fear to that and taps into a different sort of primal fear, if you will, which is that of being stalked by a predator. So not only has the predator got, you know, objects or um, weapons that resemble, you know, something that has scared mammals for millions of years, it's also behaving in a way that resembles predators that have that have hunted animals for million, hundreds of millions of years. Huh. I guess you're right. Yeah, that's 
I can't think of, I was trying to think of some predator that didn't use teeth or claws, but, uh, there, there might be some, you know, outside of the animal kingdom, like insects or, you know, obviously, or right. you consider it the microbial level, uh, predation. But if you look at mammals and certainly if you look at primates, but if you look at mammals, like I, there aren't really any predators to a mammalian species that don't use sharp teeth and sharp claws. Cause that's how you break the skin barrier. Right. Yeah. yeah a toothless, um, clawless bear doesn't seem so scary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> is what what is the what is the difference between or, or what is that deciding factor? Do you know that switches between um, scary and disturbing? Mm. You know, like like if you look at uh, thra- like thrasher type of films or slasher, I should say type of films, it's almost like it's scary, it's entertaining. But when I think of something like Hostel or something mm-hmm. where you know that scene where they're cutting his face off, like. That almost goes from scary to disturbing at sometimes. Um, right, that's the only scene I could think of on the on the fly. But is is there like some sort of like real reality incorporated into it that all of a sudden switches to a more guttural type of visceral sensation? Yeah, I think that um, probably some of it is is something that you know if if it elicits your disgust response, that's probably going to be a bit more of you know, a disgust reaction, right? If you um, have what Stephen King calls the gross out, right? The, the part of the scare that is like the outcome of interacting with the monster. Um, that's going to elicit the sort of ick aspect of it or the disgust aspect of it. Uh, I think also if you get people who behave in ways that are incredibly sadistic, so if you have a killer who is killing just because they're sadistic, I don't know if you've seen the movie, The Sadness that came out recently, that's a great example. Um, in addition to the fear that comes along with, with you know, someone trying to kill you, trying to hunt you, um, you also get a feeling of disgust that, that someone could behave in such a way that is at conflict with, with you know, your perception of how the world and how people work. Um, so I, I think the line there is, is largely between um, the, action, the action that's taken and, and the outcome of that. Right. So if you're being gratuitously violent, that's more of a disgust thing than a fear thing. Like if you're not just being violent to kill, but being violent to like make a point, um, that leads into the sort of the disgust factor. Hmm. And so you were doing some work, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but looking at uh, horror films or uh, exposure to that and resilience uh, mm-hmm. throughout the pandemic. Right. Weren't you? Mm-hmm. What was the what was the outcome of that? Because I thought that was pretty fascinating. Yeah. So the basic idea there was that, you know, we've, we've had this idea for a, for a while that, you know, maybe if you play with scary things, you um, are a little better at dealing with the emotions that come along with feeling afraid when, when they do come along. Um, and the pandemic ended up being a great way to test this because everybody was exposed to something that was novel and something that was threatening, right? So COVID is a pandemic, a global pandemic is new for everyone who is alive today. It's pretty much new to them. Um, and it's threatening to them because it's potentially dangerous, right? In addition to that threat, some people, you know, saw threats in the way that governments were responding. It was just kind of this kind of this universal new threat that was happening. Uh, and so we ran this really simple, basic study looking at do people who watch more horror movies throughout their life, um, do they report uh, better resilience in, in the face of these new threats? So this new threat. Um, what we found is that they did, right? And and in fact, if 
if you look at specifically people who had watched pandemic movies in the past, so there are a couple like Contagion or, I mean, Contagion was the, the popular one, but there, there are a few others that have been popular throughout the years. Um, you know, if, if you had watched no pandemic movies before in your life, those people reported the highest levels of, um, of stress during, the, during, during our study. Um, just watching one, just having watched one pandemic movie uh, previously, uh, like drastically increased your self-reported resilience. And so was, there was a huge distinction between having seen a simulation of this kind of event before and never having seen a simulation of this kind of event before. Uh, and when it came to horror movies, it was we found that you know people who watched horror movies were experiencing fewer physiological symptoms of of stress. They were you know not they were not reporting. So we asked people, you know, have you been um, sleeping less than usual? Have you been irritable? Have you been feeling anxious or depressed? In general, people who were horror movie fans uh, reported less of that than people who were not horror movie fans during during. And this was during I think April through May of 2020, so right at the beginning of the pandemic. And our explanation for that was, well, these people have seen simulations of this kind of thing before, so that even though it's new and it's scary. Um, they kind of have a sense for what this, like what could happen. Now, maybe that sense is wrong, but at least they have a perceived sense mm -hmm. of, of, uh, of control and a perceived sense of preparedness for that. What is the, what is the metric? You know, you, you said uh, a metric of resilience. What goes into that? Yeah. So we, we had trouble with this because there are tons of resilience metrics, but the problem is that, or not, not the problem, but the problem in our case was that a lot of the, uh, and the, like survey measures for resilience were for events that happened, you know, at a single point in time, which makes sense because most potentially traumatic events happen once and they happen, I mean, rather quickly, right? Like whether that's a terrorist attack or a fire or other kind of natural disaster or a sickness or a near death experience of some kind, those all happen at one point in time. The pandemic at this point had been going on for probably a month or two and was predicted to go on for much longer. So we couldn't just ask people like, after this event happened, how have you been feeling? Because the event is still happening, right? So we, what we did is we took measures that did make sense for continued long-term events from existing scales that were validated and, and, and highly used. And then we added in a couple of new measures to kind of get at this idea of, and we, we changed the wording a little bit to make it make sense in light of the fact that this was still going on. So rather than, you know, since this event happened, uh, have you been experiencing more sleeping disturbances? We didn't do that. Instead, what we said was, uh, since the pandemic began, have you been uh, experiencing more sleeping disturbances? So basically, mm -hmm. we just changed, made some small wording changes, added in a couple of new items that um, tapped into this, you know, long extended experience um, in order to capture capture that better. And that's that's what I give you guys credit for so much with the psychological experiments and coming <laughs> up with the, coming up with the creative metrics in, in order to get at that. I mean, cause with, with basic, uh, I shouldn't say basic, but, but with, um, more mechanistic neuroscience, it's like you have more action potentials or you don't. Or you don't. Yeah. It's, I mean, so my, my background is know. in, is in molecular biology. So I've done a little bit of both before, right? I've done some, yeah. I've done the, the bench science that is, but it comes with its own complexities, but, it, but it is more, um, it's a bit more straightforward, like what you do to solve your problem in those cases, I think. Like if, if I'm seeing this or not seeing this, here's what I can do next, figure it out. And I think sometimes with, at the psychological level, when you're doing experiments there, it's not always clear what to do next to solve your problem or even how to ask the question 
to, to get at what you're getting at. Yeah. Um, and, and to be able to get past reviewer two with the psychology <laughs> things, I, all the props in the world coming over from, from my side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's, each, each of them kind of have their own sets of difficulties. Um, you know, the downside of that is that as, as you're probably aware of, there's kind of a replication crisis going on in psychology because there's not a clear cut, you know, definition of what is, what does it look like to succeed here? And what is it, how do we know that we're really measuring what we think we're measuring? You know, when you're measuring a neuron firing, you're pretty sure you're measuring a neuron firing. Um, when we're trying to measure resilience, like, you know, kind of depends what do we mean by resilience, right? And uh, how well can people, how, how well does what the question, do the questions we're asking actually tap into that, right? So there's a lot of noise and, and those kinds of things. Uh, and we tried to control for some of that. Like, so for example, we tried to, in our study, control for uh, the extent to which people were just movie fans in general, because maybe just being able to escape into fantasy, you know, allows you to deal with threatening things better. Kind of makes sense. So we asked people, you know, in general, like how much do you do you usually enjoy movies, like more or less than other people? Um, we tried to control for age and other demographic factors that might influence it, like income. If you're richer, the pandemic is less scary than if you're poorer, right? There's less of a threat there. So we tried to control for a lot of these things that might also influence how resilient you are. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, there's still probably lots of noise in it, but we did, you know, when we controlled for all these factors, statistically, we still found this sort of main significant effect of being a horror fan meant that you were likely to report, you know, higher, higher levels of resilience. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> well, Colton, this, uh, this hour pretty much flew by, but, uh, before we go here, I wanted to ask what are your scariest movies at the moment and Ooh. going forward? What do you think, uh, you know, given the fact that we all have now been exposed to the pandemic and we're getting uh -huh. into more of the virtual realities and we're getting into these, you know, where it's towing the line between what is real and what isn't. And I guess you could almost say that if you stimulate or if you simulate everything that you know about an orange in your hand, you know, whether or not the orange is actually there may become somewhat irrelevant. But <laughs> unless you're talking about it as just being a, a nourishing substance, you know, so yeah. where, do you, where do you see a, a horror going going from here? So sc scariest movies or favorite movies? I haven't actually, so everybody, every time I do an interview, people ask me my favorite, which is fine. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't mind that, but I, but nobody's asked me, I don't think like, what are the scariest? Is that scariest, yeah. I don't scariest? care what your okay. favorite ones are. I just want to know which <laughs> ones are the scariest. Which ones are really going to scare you, right? Yeah. Um, hmm. I thought that, I guess it's kind of cheating because it's a mini series, but I thought Haunting the Hill House was a really scary, it's a they did a great job of, um, making a very suspenseful, scary story, really without a lot of the like blood and, and, and guts that you sometimes get with that. Um, that one in particular towards the end gets, gets pretty scary. Uh, I think that, I guess this is also one of my favorites, but, but Autopsy of Jane Doe is what is one of my favorite mm. horror movies. And I think that one also has a lot of really good. Yeah, it was terrifying. Uh, yeah. A lot of really <laughs> good scares to it. I think that. To, the movie that shocked me the most recently was probably the sadness and it does get into that kind of like disgust factor. Right. Um, the movie was pretty suspenseful, but I think that without giving too much away, I mean, the way that they, it's, it's kind of a typical zombie film, but there's a, a twist to it. Um, and, and the way that they do the twist, it just makes it shocking sort of bordering fear, I would say. Um, yeah. So two scary ones and a shocking one, maybe. Uh, and where do I see horror going from here? 
Uh, well, so the Recreational Fear Lab is working on a project right now uh, where we're creating a VR horror game that responds to um, how you respond to things in the game. So it adapts to how you respond to things in the game, which sounds a little Black Mirror-esque because that was a Black Mirror episode. Ideally, this will not be as uh, as bad as the Black Mirror episode, but um, <laughs> but basically, you know, we, we, we have this idea of uh, that we've we found in some of our studies that uh, people tend, there's kind of a sweet spot of fear. You know, people don't always want the scariest thing possible. They want something pretty scary, but still manageable. You can think of it like an inverse U, right? Maybe a skewed inverse U. Um, so we want something that's like a, you know, seven or eight out of 10 on scariness. Uh, and so the idea is that if we can find that sweet spot for an individual, based on something like skin conductance or heart rate or breathing, you know, a bunch of physiological measures that we can kind of put together and maybe self-report, but the physio measures that we can put together as a metric to say, this is how scared you are. We can find the sweet spot. And then as you go through the game, we can introduce new, new threats or reduce threats or change threats based on how you respond to them in order to keep everyone kind of at that sweet spot, right? To make the game as, as enjoyable as possible, not necessarily as scary as possible. Uh, so that way for, for people who would want it to be scarier, you know, if we're noticing that they're there, if you think of it like a speedometer, right? If we're noticing that their uh, speedometer is on a low level, yeah. we can dial up the fear, dial up the threats, die, and, and really um, <laughs> hone in on things that are we notice are scaring them and are getting their heart rate to spike. Uh, Introduce more of those elements in order to get them closer to that sweet spot, right? So it's sort of a personalized. Yeah, or, we were... We were working on, uh, back when I was an undergraduate, we were doing a project where we would match um, the tempo of the music when someone mm -hmm. was exercising to their heart rate. And, <laughs> you, could get, and you could get That's them cool. to, you could reduce the, you know, the rating of perceived exertion, the RPE that they would call it. Um, so cool. By like 25% or something like that. So you could get people to exercise much more intense or longer, you know, and so you just created a simple thing that would match, match the uh, the heart rate. Very Although cool. it doesn't work for all music because some music just sounds weird, but at 150 <laughs> beats per minute, but right, that's right. fascinating. Well, Colton, thanks for coming on the show. This has been absolutely fascinating. And uh, thanks for opening up to the the world of, of horror. I was, I've been pleasantly surprised at how, uh, how welcoming and nice everyone has been in the, the horror world, They're even though you guys nice. are all about scaring people, but the nicest people, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, you want you want to scare people, but you want them to have a good experience, right? You yeah, want them to have a good experience, feeling afraid. Yeah, exactly. Did you have any uh, plugs that you wanted to add? I know you're doing a lot of things uh, with different books and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you're right. I'm doing way too many things. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do have uh, I do have a book that's coming out. Um, I don't know if it'll be later this year or, or sometime next year, um, but I'm writing a book for Penguin Random House on the psychology of morbid curiosity and horror and kind of all the stuff we just talked about, right? Like, why do we enjoy these kinds of things? Where does it come from, from an evolutionary point of view? And um, are there ways that it, that it could be beneficial to us? Uh, I've also got, you know, a couple places where I write. So I've got a Psychology Today blog. I've also got a Substack that I started recently called Morbidly Curious, where uh, I'm writing a lot about some of the things that will go in my book, but also a lot of the, of the stuff that I've been thinking about that may not end up in a book or may not end up in an academic article. Uh, a lot of that is, is interesting, but doesn't have a home. So it, it's going to my Substack. Um, yeah, those are probably the only two two things I could plug for now. But yeah, have, have lots of other things, lots of other projects kind of on the horizon. Uh, so stay tuned for all things spooky coming from... 
That's right. From Dr. Colton Scrivener. That's right. You can't forget yeah. that. Uh, so thank you for coming on the show. Uh, and for all of you listening, thank you for listening to the Neural Network, www.theneuronetwork.org. Follow the show, rate the show, uh, and stay tuned for more episodes. Bye.